Hello and welcome to the new fall 2020 season of the Bullock podcast. We are now in our 55th episode. I am Marsha Links Quayley coming to you from Rabat, Morocco, and Ursula Lindsay is in Amman, Jordan. Hello, Ursula. Hi, Marsha. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about 10 books that we are reading or will be reading this fall. Um, and we just came back from our summer break, which was not really a long summer break. Mostly it was it was August. Um, and actually, it was an extremely eventful August, mostly not in any positive way, as is, I guess, the want of 2020. The new norm. Yeah, apparently. Um, I mean, it was, I, I don't know about you, for me personally, it was, there was a bit of a break, but a, a short one, because I think like a lot of people were not really going that much on vacation this year, or I mean, we're not traveling and we're also not, uh, and for that reason, in a way where we, we, we took, didn't take uh, that much time off, but there was a, a, a bit of a, of a mental break. Um, although, as you say, uh, I think uh, besides maybe the U.S. election, which kind of looms in the back of my mind as this sort of source of constant dread, the explosion in Beirut was the other thing in the port of Beirut was the other thing that like just, you know, completely absorbed and horrified everyone I knew really last month. Yeah, I think... I felt a break between the 1st and 3rd of August uh, of this year. And then from the evening of the 4th, it it, uh, it turned into much more of a horror. Um, uh, it, I, I really, I, I'm not even sure I can express why um, the explosion in Beirut sort of flattened me in the, in the way that it did. And, and the way I think it did many people people who have a connection to friends, family in, in Beirut who aren't necessarily there. There was a beautiful uh, fundraising event a few days after the explosion, or maybe a, perhaps a week after the explosion. Uh, and it was really uh, gut-wrenching to attend with maybe 15, uh, 16, 17 different musicians, artists, writers, poets, who were Lebanese or, um, or or were there to read in solidarity, and it, it and uh, I think it, it it's true of of anything, you know. In that very first moment, a lot of funds were raised to support uh, Beirut, all sorts of enterprises from from the Red Cross on the ground to rescue efforts to um, to food to to efforts to help migrant workers in the city and uh, rebuild bookshops sh- book and the um, and studios and libraries. And then, of course, people's attention turned to other things. Um, there are still many things that need to be rebuilt, places that didn't get there fast enough to uh, raise funds quickly. Uh, which I suppose is just how these things always go. Well, and I wouldn't, I mean, I, I, I think there was that first outpouring of really um, donations from individuals. I do think, I know of a number of institutions and funders that are looking to 
that are, you know, looking at ways to support now, uh, for, you know, further efforts to rebuild, like including to physically rebuild, to protect the architectural heritage of the neighborhoods that were destroyed, which was now under like further threats and, uh, and, and to support cultural spaces. Um, but you've written about this, right? We can link to an article where you, you wrote about, uh, places that people can donate to specifically to support, uh, bookstores and libraries and, and, uh, and, and writers, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, there is. And, you know, it's uh, everything from fixing the physical spaces to, uh, paying the staff while the bookshops aren't open. Right. So we'll put that in the show notes. And I do think it's a long, it's, I mean, it's such a daunting, um, long-term, there, there will be, waves of support i think a lot there was there was a real outpouring of support and then of course there's a limit to what people can do and there's a limit to people's attention but i don't think this is over um and i think it just shows how how dear the how really dear that city is just to so many of us who don't who don't live there and aren't from there even yeah absolutely i mean the the literature the writers the the cultural spaces, the things that have been uh, able to flourish in in Beirut, the things that have been started there, are, yeah, deeply important to me in ways that I'm I have not examined to articulate. Mm. And then, of course, you know, personal friends are an easy thing that you can say. Well, <laughs> I'm worried about them. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. Um, well, I'm sure we're gonna also revisit you know revisit what's happening in Beirut uh maybe maybe talk to someone who's who's there and and by complete coincidence the last episode we did we aired before our break happened to feature um the writing uh of our friend Lina Munzer and in in a way that was like really kind of bizarrely prescient um because her article was about uh not dealing with shit and, and and letting it fester and then the unintended poisonous consequences that that can have. Um, and, uh, and uh, but anyway, I'm sure we'll be like following and, 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 and talking to people more throughout this season too. Yeah. And there's been a, a lot of beautiful, heartbreaking writing that has come out of Beirut in the last month. And, and we can also post links to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, by Lina, by Nasriyatala, by uh, Zina Hashembek, by Rimra Rantisi, by by a bunch of people who were affected in the, and wrote about the moment and and afterwards. Mm-hmm. And by coincidence, the um, the first book that I want to talk about that I'm reading for fall is by an author who's born in Beirut, although she doesn't live there now. Uh, Etel Adnan, who's, I'm not sure what I want to call it, but um, who's Shifting the Silence is coming out in, in September this month. And Etel Adnan is now 95 years old and continues to produce new work and I believe also new paintings. Uh, how, I, I don't know. But she was born in Beirut in 1925. She studied philosophy 
This year, her collection Time, translated by Sarah Riggs, won the Best Translated Book Award in the Poetry category and the 2020 Griffin Poetry Prize in Canada, which is a major international poetry prize for works in translation. And that collection had a lot to do with mortality. And this, uh, this book also has a lot to do with coming face to face with death. And um, I, I, I suppose I find it um, at the same time compelling and terrifying um, because it is a you know, in the way that death maybe always is, but this is a sort of a very real death, a very real confrontation. A person who's 95 is probably not, you know, she's not immortal. Um, so she is, is thinking about, um, the, her, her, the scope of her life and, um, the passage of time in, and it's, it's in prose, but it's sculpted, um, sculpted like poetry. Mm. And I'd like to read a little bit of it, if that's all right. The size of the future is not any longer than this alley's, and questions are falling and failing. But to go by a narrow gully, find the tide at its lowest, watch ducklings follow their mother in search of evening food, is a sure way to some kind of an illumination. I am wearing the rose color of Syria's mountains, and I wonder why it makes me restless. Often my body feels close to sea creatures, sticky, slimy, unpredictable, more ephemeral than need be. From there, I have to proceed as an avalanche of snowfalls. That's what the radio has just said, that an entire village has, entire villages have been made invisible. But they are far away. The news never covers my immediate environment. And having more memories than yearnings, searching in unnameable spaces, Sicily's orchards or Lebanon's thinning waters, I reach a land between borders, unclaimed, and stand there as if I were alone, but the rhythm is missing. What is not missing is fear. It's a matter of arteries clogged, of long hours of sleeplessness, of the lack of resolution for any outstanding problem. My feet are sliding on a wet floor, but I have to thank my good luck. I leave the horizon deal with my terror. Hmm. So uh, I guess a lot of the books that I'm going to talk about are um, poetry or some sort of intersection of poetry, philosophy, poetry, memoir, poetry, something. And um, it. <laughs> It's good for taking one out of the immediate moment into somewhere else to be able to kind of reshape mm. uh, the narrative a little bit. Yeah, I mean, what a career she's had, my goodness. I can't believe she's still writing and so well. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, uh, it is, uh, it, it is st stunning and still having um, exhibitions and, and still yeah. reaching new readers. Um, okay, well... My so this list that we're sort of putting together is going to be quite eclectic. I think <laughs> yours is got you know you said mostly poets and memoir. Mine includes some books that were actually written many many years ago, but uh, but for one reason or another have sort of 
come to my attention again uh, at this moment or are, are being translated um, and, uh, and, and are, are there for, you know, uh, I'm looking forward to like reading or rereading. So um, the one that I would like to mention is there's a new English translation of uh, part of the magnum opus of the it's sort of hard to even describe his nationality. Let's say Lebanese Italian writer Alessandro Spina, um, who, who in truth was actually Syrian Italian Lebanese. Uh, <laughs> his, his 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 Syrian family had come and 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 set up a shop in uh, Ottoman-controlled Lebanon, uh, and then. Uh, lived there during the Italian invasion, uh, colonialism, uh, until its end. Uh, he was born in Benghazi in, I think, 1937 and left. Sorry, you said you, you said Lebanon by accident. Libya. Oh, yes. <laughs> Did I say it more than once? No, just once. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, no, in Libya. Uh, and he was... Um, he was born there, I think, in 37, and he left the country in 79. Um, and uh, he wrote in Italian. He wrote uh, this sort of long cycle of novels, and they are being uh, collected into several volumes and translated uh, by the poet uh, Andrea Nafis Saheli for Darf Publisher. And um, the second volume has come out, or is, and it's called the Fourth Shore, which is what the Italian, the Italian government, I guess, called Libya. It was Italy's, you know, Fourth Shore uh, under, when it when it colonized it after it colonized it. So um, he wrote a kind of um, really the entire history from. From the conquest, which is what the first volume deals with, through the sort of establishment of the Italian colony and and through its end, um, and uh, I'm just going to actually read from an article I wrote about him a while back because it'll be better than anything I can come up with extemporaneously and and sort of gives an idea of the kind of writer he was, which I think was very unique. Mm. Um, so this is from an article I wrote in The Nation, I think back in 2015. Um, Spina belonged to a set of privileged, wandering, mercantile minorities whose identities could not be reduced to nationalities and who have been all but swept out of the Middle East by xenophobia, conflict, and ethnic cleansing. Spina aspired to cosmopolitanism but inverted its usual polarities, he liked to shock his Italian friends by telling them that he had been unprovincialized himself by moving from Milan to Benghazi. His influences and references range from Proust to the Thousand and One Nights to the 15th century Greek philosopher and bishop Synesius of Cyrene. But for all his cosmopolitanism, Spina was not interested in universalism. What he valued above all, above all was being unique. He was a Catholic moved by the daily presence of the divine in traditional Muslim society, a successful industrialist who viewed modernization with skepticism and melancholy, a critic of colonialism who was also dismissive of superficial tiers 
and a scathing critic of the silence of all Italian political factions regarding the country's colonial crimes. The nom de plume he adopted, spina means thorn, suited him perfectly. The Italian he writes in is exquisite but prickly. His sentences are thickets, dense and erudite, demanding to be reread. So I'll, st I'll stop there. Um, I think that gives a sense of what a sort of unique uh, figure he was and then, and, and, and then his choice to write about this particular part of Libyan history, even after he left for Italy in 79, he then spent the next 40 years writing exclusively about Libya. Um, I mean, that was the topic that he chose. Um, and uh, may maybe we'll, you know, revisit him, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to, to see this, this second volume and it's out in translation. And, uh, and I think he's a very interesting writer. Yeah, and he, so he be, he re began them chronologically, right? From, uh, um, so he must yes. have had the scope of this whole project in his head when he began. Yes, yes. In fact, I think, and and he began once he decided that this was a topic. I think he conducted also like a lot of archival research as much as he could. So he started reading not just Italian sources, but also um, uh, reading all sorts of. Uh, Arab writers um, and 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 to try and understand also like the the local pre-existing culture uh, um, and uh, yeah I think he had it in his mind pretty early on that it was going to be this this full cycle. Fantastic, and we will finally have all of them in in English translation, which is great. Well, it may be a while till we get to the end of it because right. it's, a, it's a it's a big project mm. that they have that they have bid off. But I'm happy to see the second volume coming out because when the first volume came out in translation, because it is such a big project, I wondered will they will they really continue? You know, will they manage right. to go to the end with this? And uh, and and I hope they do. Right. Yeah, because that is always a question, like the Munif Quintet. Um, I think it was vintage books. I can't remember who started it, but then they were disappointed, I think, in the sales of, of the first book and, and then they abandoned the project midway. So mm. hopefully we will get all of this. Yeah, yeah. So the third book on the list is Nadek um, al-Malaika's Revolt Against the Sun, which will be a bilingual collection coming out from Saki Press in Emily Drumsta's translation this fall. And Nadek al-Malaika, she uh, was born around the same time as Etel Adnan in 1923, and she died in, in 2007. She was a leading figure in the Arabic poetry of the 1950s, 1960s, when it was in a shifting state, um, uh, when, when the genre was being sort of questioned and rewritten. And she had her own kind of way forward that was not the same as, as other poets who were innovating at the time. And I think sometimes people call it sort of a midway. Uh, she was a romantic poet and a contemporary poet, but I, I prefer to think of it as, as her way. <laughs> and uh, what I like about her poetry is um, a lot of the, the intimacy of it and how much she cared about um, uh, 
people in all sorts of different social situations of, um, and, you know, people, she had, I think, very large sympathy, very large empathy. Um, and Emily has been translating these poems for quite some time. A number of them have appeared on Arab Lit and one in Arab Lit Quarterly um, and other places, Asymptote. There are um, a, a number of poems that have now appeared. And then this will come as a big bilingual collection. I know they're still kind of struggling with the, the layout of some of the pages, but um, I think it will be, uh, it, certainly it's a challenge to translate because um, in, in many places she worked in, in rhymed couplets, which is something that's really hard to pull off in, in English without so sounding pretty ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, in, in, and I think Emily takes different approaches to it at different points. Um, I would read just from, I, I, and I, I don't have a, the, the finished collection, but this is um, To a Girl Sleeping in the Street which uh, is, was published on Asymptote, um, translated by Emily Drumsta. In Karada at night, wind and rain before dawn, when the dark is a roof or a drape never drawn, when the night's at its peak and the dark's full of rain and the wet silence roils like a fierce hurricane, the lament of the wind fills the deserted street, the arcades groan in pain and the lamps softly weep, a guard frowns as he passes with trembling steps, lightning shows his thin frame but shadows intercept, swept away by the floods, torn to bits by the cold, the night trembles with dark shivers when thunder rolls. At a bend in the road, the threshold of a door to a house that nobody lives in anymore, lightning flashes and shows lying there fast asleep, a young girl skin ripped raw by the winter wind's whip. So I think she combines kind of this, um, you know, somewhat more classical um, poetic form with a more contemporary interest in, for instance, a girl sleeping in a in a door frame. Mm. And um, and so I'm interested to see what Emily ha has. So again, I haven't seen it yet, <laughs> but I'm interested in, to see what Emily how she recreates rec this in an interesting way in in English. I also think. Um bilingual editions of poetry work well like you know you can really like on the same two facing pages like I mean of course it, the audience maybe that can read in both languages isn't that huge but when you can even read poorly in Arabic it's very satisfying to see the two versions side by side and be able to compare um, and and see what the translator has done and, and read these kind of two versions of the poem. Yeah, I mean, a translator who will remain anonymous since he said this not meaning to be published, but he, he I, you know, he's had bilingual collections and, you know, complained that it also does lead to many people saying, wait, you're sending an email saying, shouldn't this word be, you know, a lot of... Uh, second year Arabic students um, arguing with the translation, which of course doesn't necessarily, particularly with poetry, render in a word for word 
Um, no, if anybody has to take liberties, it's a translator of poetry. I mean, you 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 have to. Yeah, no, uh, I was a, in an event yesterday, a panel on translation of children's literature, and it's... I was surprised or not surprised, shouldn't have been surprised, that it's very much the same in children's literature, that um, poetry, children's poetry in translation is very much an adaption process versus a translation process of making it work as poetry mm. in the target language, whatever that may be. Oh, well, I look forward to that one, too. And again, I think off of this list, there's probably a number of these books that we will be discussing in more detail um, later in later episodes this is a little bit of a um what do you call it preview of the season right a taster yeah um so okay so then my my next book is also something that was written a long time ago i promise they won't all be books (laughs) from the from from last century from mid last century um but actually i've been i've been meaning to read this book for a while because I feel like it's a classic that I've never read. And this is The Pillar of Salt uh, by the Tunisian writer Albert Memmi, mm. um, who passed away this, this year and um, who uh, was was written about in a, in a lovely essay by Adam Schatz for the London Review of Books, which kind of is also what spurred me to revisit this idea that I, I need to read him. Um, and, um, maybe what I'll do is just read a little bit from, from Adam's essay, which does a wonderful job of situating Memmi, uh, historically and aesthetically and politically, um, throughout his career. So he was, um, he was a, uh, Tunisian Jew who, uh, wrote, so the pillar of salt is sort of one of the seminal, uh, post-colonial novels published in, I think, 53. Um, And uh, he was uh, supportive of the decolonization of Tunisia. Um, But as as Adam explains, his reputation has sort of suffered uh, since, and partly that's because, although he was very critical of colonialism, he was very uncritical of Israel. Um, And so that kind of put him at odds, obviously, with you know, the national liberation movements in the region um, and with a lot of other artists and and, and intellectuals and seems to find sort of a blind spot in his otherwise quite acute analysis of uh, the relationships between colonizing and colonized people, which is something he wrote uh, books of of essays about. so this is just uh, a, an excerpt from the essay after discussing uh, sort of Memmi's de- declining reputation, uh, Schatz writes, yet Memmi's decline also reflects a strength of his work, its refusal of consolations, among them inspirational heroism and its sense of tragedy. Born in 1920, between the poet Aimé César and France Fanon, Memmi shared their opposition to colonial domination and took part in the anti-colonial struggle. But unlike César and Fanon, whose writing celebrated revolt, Memmi saw little poetry or utopian promise in anti-colonial struggle. The face of revolt, he said, isn't pretty and can also lead to injustice, since everyone, 
looks for an inferior echelon in relation to which he can appear dominant and relatively superior. Racism is a pleasure within reach of everyone. Tunisian independence, he predicted, would leave the country's Jewish community with little choice but to leave, thanks in part to the otherwise laughable privileges they had enjoyed under the French. On the eve of independence, there were more than 100,000 Jews in Tunisia. Today, hardly a 1,000 remain. While he didn't criticize the colonized for using violence and mocked European liberals who did so, he didn't see violence as shock therapy. You don't get out of oppression so easily. It was one thing to remove the external barriers that had confined the oppressed, quite another to remove the more crippling psychological ones. Only a severe and unyielding labor of reflection could pave the way to freedom. So I'll just stop there. I'll say that this this essay, which delves not only into his fiction, but into his nonfiction writing on colonialism and the effects that it has um, on on both sides of that relationship, has made me uh, even more interested in, in his work. And me as well. I think I will be reading that this fall, too. Yeah. Um, yet another one of these writers who has no, who's, who lives through one of these great sort of disruptive historical moments at the end of colonialism and then finds himself a little bit not belonging anywhere. Mm. Okay, what else? What next? So the, so the fifth book on the list is uh, by Moroccan Dutch author Mustafa Stitu, Two Half Faces which is translated by David Colmer from the Dutch and will be out in October. And this um, book reached me sort of with an oddly perfect timing because I just, uh, August is Women in Translation Month uh, because into English and and into a number of other languages, the books that are translated uh, are really dominated by men's works. Um, this is a month to celebrate women's work in translation. Although I, so I looked into <laughs> the opposite, you know, translated into Arabic and it's much less of an issue. I think it's much less of an issue in languages where translation is more normalized and not seen as sort of high liter- important literature. But in any case, so I was making a list of, um, Maghrebi women who write in Dutch because, um, I, I'm a big fan of Rashida Lamrabat and her work, although I read it, I've only read it in translation. Also, Naima Bezez, uh, she took her life last month. She's a sort of best-selling and award-winning Moroccan-Dutch author who has not ever been translated, not ever had a full-length work translated into, into English. Um, and at, at this same day, while I was composing these things, um, the publisher of um, Mustafa Stitu's uh, poetry collection, Two Half Faces, his first poetry collection in English translation, contacted me with a, um, uh, a review copy. And, and I had read actually in, coming, in, try, in digging up <laughs> Moroccan women who write in Dutch, I had come across his name again and again as one of the most innovative authors working in Dutch uh, right now. And I am always a fan of David Colmer's work. And so I started to read this poetry collection, which is so very different from the other two that I've talked about so far. And in this poetry collection was 
of of the poems that I've read thus far, and it's also a bilingual collection in Dutch and English, uh, is um, disturbing, <laughs> very very disturbing in in some places. And I'm going to read a part that's very disturbing. <laughs> I won't, I won't attempt to read it in the Dutch since I haven't any idea how to pronounce Dutch words, but here is David Colmer's English translation. Through our taxidermist, we purchased a chimpanzee from the zoo, stillborn, premature. We measured the cadaver and made a filling of polyurethane foam, wire, wool, and string. The taxidermist had great difficulty skinning it. It felt, he grumbled, like cutting open a baby but nobody creates out of nothing. Art is disassembly and transformation. We only use the skin. The stuffing was a devil of a job. Our little ape's fingers were as fragile as matchsticks. We immortalized it as Jesus, without a cross, but in the biblical pose, arms wide. The theory of evolution mixed with the Catholic faith we were raised in. Both contain something plausible that fails to fully convince us, those who don't see that duality call it kitsch. Even when we were kids, we never used toys as intended. Mm. So the parts of, of this collection that I've read thus far are um, very striking, and they have all been sort of as disturbing as skinning an infant ape and stuffing it with polyurethane foam. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say, after you said that, I, I was like bracing. I, I just, I didn't know, I, just, I felt like something bad's going to come, but I don't know what. Um, <laughs> it was good warning because actually I, I it was, it was, I, I pictured, you know, I was so immediately concerned that it was going to be, you know, so disturbing that I was actually okay with the, with the taxiderm, the baby ape. Um, that's uh, it, and and he writes in Dutch, and there's a number of 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 Moroccan and and writers because there's such a big immigrant community there who write in Dutch. Yeah, uh, it's an important part of the Dutch literary scene. I I think there are um, Abdelkader bin Ali. There are a lot of prominent, award-winning authors who are Moroccans who who write in Dutch. Cool. Well, so the next book I was going to talk about is also by a Moroccan author. Um, uh, he writes in French, um, and this is uh, Abdallah Taya has a book out a called A Country for Dying in English translation by Emma Ramadan. And uh, Abdallah Taya is a pretty famous uh, and still pretty young uh, Moroccan author, although I think he's written something like eight books by now. Mm. Um, he, uh, he was, uh, yeah, he's, I think in his forties, uh, he lives in Paris now, but comes regularly to Morocco. And in a way that I, I almost feel bad saying this because it's reduces him so much, but the thing that he's sort of best known for, um, as a public figure is, is being the, one of the only openly gay men in Morocco and I, that, that I know it's the only openly gay writer and who also writes about that um and uh which is one reason why he does not reside in Morocco but he does come and 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 do public events and do readings and um I'm um, I'm, I'm I'm a quite big admirer of his public stances and his public discourse um uh the the 
positions he takes uh, politically and socially, um, I think are both quite quite brave and quite nuanced. Uh, like, um, and and also he's written some things about his personal life story, which was very traumatic, really uh, very difficult childhood um, and and adolescence. Um, so. He's had, I think, at least one other book translated into English. Um, I haven't read this book yet, but I intend to. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about it. Um, and I'll just uh, summarize the the plot from um, from the book description. It seems to be the story of um, several, uh, so, so of um, several people from Iran, from Morocco. Uh, who are all in Paris now. Um, one is a former prostitute. There's someone undergoing a sex change operation. Uh, there is, uh, th- there, these are all people fleeing in one way or another, it seems, uh, forms of like political or social oppression in their home countries. They're you know, refugees and, and immigrants uh, in Paris. I think, uh, I don't know if in this particular book, but I, I think in other books, he's also though written about then the forms of oppression that one encounters in a Western European country as an immigrant and a refugee. Uh, so, and, um, and, and, and I believe in the story then the, the main character who is this, this, this woman who in a way is uh, taking t- taking it in and and protecting a number of other figures in, in in who are going through these difficult life situations is is herself being pursued by a man from her past who who is a threat to her. Um, so that so that's what I know of the plot of the book. Okay, so number seven is actually also a book translated by Emma Ramadan, forthcoming in September, and also about a sex worker, although this sex worker is in Casablanca and she's very much not, um, a, not it's okay, I, you know, you couldn't say her life is easy or luxurious or simple um, or without trouble, but she's not a troubled or haunted figure. She's, um, I haven't finished the book yet, but I really enjoy her a lot. <laughs> um, for how she's out there facing life, seeing it through, um, just a, 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 a defensive, but, um, you know, um, a, a lens of which she is taking care of herself and, and, you know, to some extent, the others around her, although she's definitely not the sex worker with a golden heart. So she's, uh, working in Casablanca and then she's, uh, drawn in to help give advice about a film about sex work, Moroccan sex workers. And then the story moves from there. Um, I would like to read something from, uh, from the beginning that gives a sense of her, her voice. Uh, and here she is coming back with a client and she finds that the babysitter has dumped her daughter in her apartment, which is of course, inconvenient. Go outside. Robio has to repair something, I say to Samia. It's very rare that she's there when I bring men home, but when she is, I tell her that they're repairmen for the wooden furniture, the television, the fridge, the windows, whatever. I don't know what she thinks, but what's certain is that she's growing up, and if this continues, it might start to cause some problems. 
I'll be right there. Won't take long, I continue, handing her a wooden stool to sit on and signaling to four eyes with the other hand for him to get himself ready. I close the door. Let's go. On the mattress. Pull down your boxers. Lay me on my back. Lift my jalaba. He's a two-pump chump. It won't take long. With Sami outside, I'm happy it's him and not someone else. The problem with this line of work is that you never know who you'll end up with. It's not worth it for me to go into the details or to recount everything I see. But let's just say that I've come across everything you can imagine and things you wouldn't even want to think about. The guy who wants you to devour him, holding him in your neck like it's the last thing on earth, drowning in a raging sea, he suffocates you in his flabby flesh and wants you to swallow for him. In his shipwreck, you are the raft, neither flesh nor blood nor liver. Back on land, he leaves you on the briny bank, foaming and filthy, and the tide takes you again. Another. So what mm. I like about it is that it's like both, you know, sort of um, crude or real, and also she has these poetic moments that don't, you know, don't ever feel like lyrical or jarring. Yeah, that feel like an authentic, uh, I mean, that the voice is believable. Yes. Well, you know, not having ever been a sex worker in Casablanca, it feels believable to me. Which is all that, uh, I mean, most of the voices we hear in fiction are not ones that we have any way of, you know. Right, right. Engaging. But, verifying, right. You know, they don't even not have... A freelance worker sitting in her it's not apartment. It's not anthropology, right? It's not, right. Uh, but uh, how... Um, all right. So, yeah. So uh, another book from Morocco and another book in some way about, uh, about, uh, well, I don't think, I don't think Abdullah, I mean, Abdullah's book is like not exactly about sex work, but it's certainly about people's sexual lives and they're hidden perhaps or forced to be hidden sexual lives. And that seems to be a theme uh, of some debate in Moroccan society these days. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, so, uh, the last book that I'll mention is one, uh, that was, uh, that was sent, sent to me, um, uh, recently that came out recently and it's called, uh, Between Beirut and the Moon. It's by, it's the first book by a Lebanese author called Naji Bakhti. Um, and it's a, again, I haven't read the whole book, uh, but I think, um, what I have read is uh, is quite charming, and um, it's a series of quite light-hearted essays. I mean, it's 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 a book that's that's aiming to be you know humorous as as well as um, insightful, and uh, about the author's family and about growing up in Lebanon, uh, more or less through through the through the civil war. Um, I mean, he was a child during it. Um, but, uh, but, uh, the, the early portions are really stories about, you know, the family's apartment, uh, their rundown car, uh, you know, the, what, the, the one that I found sort of most, uh, interesting, uh, and evocative so far was a schoolyard game that was actually, uh, pr pretty insidiously sectarian, um, which involved, uh, boys slapping muslim boys slapping another boy in the face and then saying oh if you're christian you can't slap me back because you christians, turn the other cheek. <laughs> christians have to turn the other cheek um which which is 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 both funny and kind of 
horrible in a way that I, I, I enjoyed. And then of course ends up with, you know, a, a, this game only goes so far before before there's a, a bloody confrontation between two boys in the schoolyard. And then also a pretty funny confrontation between the parents and the teacher and the principal, I mean. So um yeah, so that's and that that's a that's a new book. Um and uh and I think it has uh a quite um a quite interesting voice to it. Excellent. So we are going to sneak on two books, really, by Heizemel Wardani. One is The Book of Sleep, which was which came out in, in 2018, has been translated by Robin Mosher and is coming out from Seagull Books this November. And we had talked er, on an earlier episode about Heizem's, um How to Disappear, which was translated by Jennifer Lee Peterson and Anne Robin Mosher for as part of this Kefeta uh, series, which is just a, an absolutely wonderful series. Um, and and this book, uh, Book of Sleep, is is in in some ways like How to Disappear. It's a prose work that weaves together stories, narratives, philosophy, um, memoir, uh, kind of in this, um, in this way of just like picking up things out of different books and weaving them together in, in a way that is very evocative of classical Arabic literature, uh, and as well as contemporary, very contemporary forms. And it's part of this in, in my mind, this new wave of, of nonfiction coming out of, of Egypt that moves between all sorts of different forms, but has a, a deep bedrock of, of poetry to it. Um, and I will read a short excerpt to give a flavor of what this book is, since it's not really one we can describe the, the plot of so much. This uh, section is called The Kingdom of Things. The room is full of its things. There is a little desk by the door and a lamp beside the bed. There is a suitcase against the wall and a flower pot on the window frame. In the desk drawer, there is a passport and a marriage certificate and, lying in the dresser drawer, a golden earring, a bracelet. A bright shirt has been carelessly tossed over the chair and abandoned on the floor is a sock, inverted. We leave all this behind and are drawn toward the gulf of sleep, which is called sleep. There, for a moment, time stops and we imagine that we have moved elsewhere. But as soon as we enter it, we are cast back into the room itself, this time not as a presiding force, but as one thing among its many, the thing which we've become in sleep propelled by irresistible sympathy toward the other things and seeping now bit by bit onto the pillow, then onto the bed then out into the room. And just as we are transformed into things during sleep, so the things in our room transform into beings other than those we know. They lose their passivity and gradually return to themselves. No longer objects and implements, they are now bodies through which a secret inner motion flows. They are our things, which we resemble and which resemble us, and the deeper we fall into sleep, the more we settle into these things, or they into us, or all of us together into the room. In the fraternity of sleep, 
we do not encounter things along the lines of power, but rather in their primordial matter, in the heart of its becoming. The flood of its first forms runs through us, and in us beats a pulse as old as the universe. Oh, I like that. Yeah, me too. You so- know, <laughs> I remembered liking his writing, but I couldn't actually remember it very well. Um, there is a kind of a funny dreaminess to it. Um, there's a Kazuo Ishiguro novel about the dream state that I similarly loved in the moment and have trouble recalling. <laughs> I mean, it's true of all writing with time. Like you mm. always forget and all that you can remember sometimes is how it made you feel mm. rather than the writing itself. I I, I, I found Anwartani's writing, maybe because like you say, it's sort of between prose and poetry and uh, there's something very, I don't know, fluid about it. Um, but um, I, I remember liking a lot uh, how to disappear, which is also very slim. And also the topics themselves, sleep, how to disappear. It's these evanescent things, yes, right? Yes, yeah. Um, uh, also, I've heard, I've had his new book, um, strongly recommended to me by someone whose opinion I, I trust. Uh, it's called Mele Yunken Islaho, so that which can't be repaired. Mm. Uh, and um, if if we do, uh, if we once again, like, read a book in, in Arabic, I mean, usually we read books in English for this show, we discuss books in English, but if, like, we did with Iman Marcel, we do one Arabic book, uh, I think I would... That would be a candidate um, for, for us to both read. Yeah, I read um, some criticism by Ali al-Adawi which, it, it, about this new book, that it, it, it rests the representation of animals and literature from dominant tropes of symbolic projection, just as he previously wrested sleep from the cliche of the land of dreams. And I'm just interested in that, particularly as I'm working on this cat's issue of Arab Quarterly right now, um, and the ways... The difficulties in presenting cats as cats, you know, because they so often are just these symbols for uh, whatever lust or humans at the margins or or whatever people want or, or devils. Or cuteness. Or, or, or cuteness. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, so since we're all, since we're uh, as part of our pre- preview for the for the season, so we'll definitely be talking about cats and the next issue of Arabic quarterly that you've been working on in the next episode. Um, so we'll be able to delve into cats. Um, and you've been putting some absolutely delightful photos of various famous Arab authors and their cats online. Yes. Um, if anybody has a photo of Mahmoud Darwish and a cat, for instance, please, <laughs> I want it. I have a photo of Nagib Mafuz and a tiny dog that I'm very torn about. I really want to include it anyway. Oh, yeah, sure. Like, he can be the only one who has a dog instead of a cat. Yeah, as long as it's just one tiny dog. Yeah. The, uh, I, uh, uh, I, I have been told that the cats wouldn't mind one tiny dog. I think so. Um. But so, yeah, so you've been working, you've been working hard, I think, on that. And then also there's a book that you've translated that I know, 
I had to sort of talk you into mentioning on this list, but we do need to talk about it. Um, so please yes. tell us about so Sonia Nimmer's book. Right. It is a it won the Atisalat Award for Arabic children's literature in the young adult category in maybe 2014. And I had I loved this book and I loved her book Thunderbird, which came out the next year, which is part of a trilogy. I love actually all of Sonia's middle grade and young adult writing. It's so fun. This particular book, Wondrous Journeys, is kind of an Ibn Battuta plus Palestinian folklore, but it's framing, but then it's told from the point of view, not of a, you know, a Moroccan male who leaves home at 20 to go off on hedge, but it's a a Palestinian girl who, um, who has a very strange childhood that I won't spoil for you. And then who sets off herself because she she wants a different kind of life. She wants to see the world. She wants to see the world that she managed to read about in books. And she has, it, it, it's kind of episodic. You know, she, um, um, she has a number of adventures, including uh, dressing up as a male and becoming a pirate. Um, and eventually she has a daughter. This daughter is taken into slavery. And so then the rest of the novel is her chasing down, trying to find her daughter. And I was slightly disappointed that it's not being published as a young adult novel. It's being published simply as literary fiction um, because she, the Qamar, the the narrator grows up during this, uh, you know, she has a daughter, for instance. Um, And that's not something we do in young adult literature in English, apparently. So it's being published as, but it, I think it's a wonderful all ages story. Um, it, uh, the, <laughs> there's a, a version in the Emirati schools that's been adapted for safety, but I really think, you know, <laughs> unless you're very sensitive, it's a, it's an absolutely wonderful all ages, uh, story. And the title is? Wondrous the- Journeys in Strange Lands. Cool. And, and it, it should out. be out in October from Interlink Books. We are still arguing over the map that will come on the opening pages to show you her journey. Um, but nice. hopefully everything will come out on time. Nice. Well, I look forward to seeing that. Um, is this the first book, whole book that you've translated or not? Yeah, yeah, because uh, Redi and Rowan, um, it was co-written by Fatma Sharafeddin and Samar Mahfouz Baraj, and I translated Fatma's chapters and Savad Hussein, uh, a friend of mine, translated Samar's chapters. So that was a co-written, co-translated book. And so this is, yeah, the first one that's um, all my effort. <laughs> well, nice. Mabrook. I mean, obviously, you think it's a good book. There's, There's no... I think if you choose to translate something, that in and of itself, for the, I, I mean, certainly in your case, and I think even for most, you know, professional translators, is is already a vote of like people pick things they like in the first place to spend that much time with. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I enjoyed it so much. I went back, read it a second time, translated the whole book as an act of love, and then I pitched it. So this was definitely not a commercial project in any way oh translation (laughs) as an act of love (laughs) yes 
Oh, well, listen, we will have, so obviously we've mentioned 10 books now um, that are either out or about to come out. Um, and we will have all of these in the show notes. So if you heard about something that you're interested in, you can, you know, go find it. And we'll be revisiting some of these in more depth uh, when we either get our hands on our own copies or when we get through our own copies. Um, and uh, what else should we say? I mean, there's the usual reminder uh, to please subscribe to the show. Yes, uh, like, rate, talk about like, it. Like us, rate us. Um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, it's at Bullock Books. Um, if you want to, if you have any comments about the show, you can use the hashtag Bullock Books. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're happy to be back. It's, it's great to, to talk to you. And I think we were sort of casting yeah. around. We were saying, what should we, what should we talk about on our first episode? And then it, and then very quickly we had like a longer list than we could even manage in fact of, of titles. So I, I think we have lots to talk about. Yeah. It is great to be back. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. And so we'll be, um, We'll be speaking again in a couple of weeks and uh, goodbye for now. Yes, goodbye. Bye. Bye.